Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today is our final episode for season two. Trey and I hope you enjoy this very special and magical conversation about Tolkien and the spirit of Christmas. But before I introduce our special guests, I have noticed a lot of questions and great conversations on our Facebook group. There are many people asking about what books to read and how to teach classically, and it seems that many of you may not be aware that we have courses that support everything you hear on this podcast. I currently serve as a pedagogy and curriculum specialist for a classical school, but I also homeschooled my children for 15 years, so I'm very passionate about reaching not only classroom teachers, but homeschoolers. I have carefully chosen a team of excellent trainers to help you experience how to teach classically and why to teach classically. These are the million dollar questions. So I have several immersion courses if you want to experience how to be a classical teacher. And I have several book seminars on why to teach classically. If you're interested in exploring the why of classical education, All of us at Beautiful Teaching are experienced educators and students of classical education, not only in the classroom, but as homeschoolers. Many of you may not be aware, but Trey was homeschooled and I homeschooled my children. So we're a great team. Um, We have experience in all areas of different courses and uh, different expertise. So I've got lots of consultants on there ready to teach classes to you. We also have made them very affordable for homeschoolers and teachers. So visit our website uh, with our courses called coursestorm.beautifulteaching.com. Again, coursestorm.beautifulteaching.com, and you'll see immersion courses, um, book seminars, and also some classes that are great for parents if you have kids at a classical school. Be great to read some of these books. So we have divided those into those categories for you. And uh, we hope to see you there. If you have any questions, you can always email me at beautifulteaching at gmail.com. That's beautifulteaching at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a Merry Christmas. We are so excited about this episode. So it's a great treat. Happy holidays. Today, Trey and I have two amazing guests, Richard Rowland and Reno Loro. And we invited them on the show because they are both what we would consider experts or lovers of Tolkien. And we wanted to offer a Christmas episode on kind of a theme of Tolkien and fatherhood and Christmas and whatever other avenues Richard and Reno want to take the discussion. Um, I realized in thinking about how to introduce them that we could do an entire episode just on introducing Richard and Reno and their work in the realm of Tolkien. And uh, so I don't even know where to begin with all of the work they do in in the world of Tolkien, the magical world. But um, they both have voices and thoughts that are very important uh, for this discussion. And I know Richard has several podcasts, which I think I'm going to have you, Richard, tell a little bit about 
you know, your Tolkien world. And then also Reno, you share a little bit about your Tolkien world because you both have so many irons in the fire on this that I, I, I would do it injustice to even explain how much work you guys have been doing in this, in this realm. So uh, Richard, you can introduce yourself in that world and then Reno. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the big thing that I do Tolkien related uh, if you want to just like go out and find what are my thoughts about Tolkien uh, is that I am the co-host of the Amon Sul podcast, uh, which is on Ancient Faith Radio and it uh, is A-M-O-N space S-U-L. Um, if that's hard to, for you to remember, you can just simply go to TolkienPodcast.com and it'll redirect you to the appropriate link. And uh, so I'm the co-host of that along with my friend, Father Andrew Stephen Damick, and we talk about uh, to the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, specifically from an Orthodox Christian perspective. But we have a lot of guests on uh, who are um, uh, Christian, but maybe not necessarily Orthodox, but they have, you know, thoughtful, useful, interesting things to say about Tolkien. So that's the big thing I do. Those episodes are usually pretty long, usually an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. Um, so you can hear my thoughts ad nauseum. Um, the other things that I do, um, I mean, I've, I've done a, a fair amount of writing and publishing about Tolkien over the years in various essay collections, anthologies, things like that. Um, most notably, uh, I should have had a copy of it here to sort of show to the camera, but I have a, um, uh, I have a chapter in a book called Amid Weeping There is Joy, uh, which was, uh, published by my friend, Dr. Cyril Jenkins, uh, who you should have on this podcast if you have not done so already. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, he, uh, uh, he put this anthology together of sort of Orthodox Christian readings and Eastern Christian readings on, uh, uh, of the, of the legendarium. So I have a, I have a chapter in there actually about, uh, rude screams and, uh, Tolkien and the Pearl poem. So, um, people, if you want to check that out, you can buy that book on Amazon. It's called, again, it's Amid Weeping There Is Joy. And then, um, if you just go to YouTube and put my name in, you will see that I am all over YouTube in many different places. Um, the main thing that I've been doing is a, a monthly series. We had to take a little break in the fall uh, because of travel, but I've been doing a monthly series with Jonathan Pajot on uh, the idea of medieval universal history. So we talk about how medieval people sort of, let's say, wrote themselves into the Christian story as they converted. Um, we, in fact, we just recorded a really cool episode about that yesterday, and that'll be going live soon. And then we, um, we've got another recording uh, set this month uh, to do specifically about the Beowulf poem um, right in time for Christmas, uh, because, of course, as everyone knows, Christmas Eve is the time to tell ghost stories and monster stories. Um, it's not Halloween. It's Christmas Eve. And um, this is uh, uh, and uh, Christmas Eve and, and, you know, Beowulf. I mean, uh, you couldn't ask for a better monster story. So uh, so that'll be coming out soon, and then maybe some other cool announcements about some things we'll be collaborating on soon. So, um, And then, you know, I've got, uh, I've got a, a fantasy writing and publishing. Uh, this book came out uh, this earlier this year. This is the Akborida, which is like a, a weird sort of foray into world building. Uh, but you could say like uh, a liturgical world building would be how I would describe it. So if you if you like fantasy literature and like this, uh, I mean, this is a Tolkien podcast. So if you like if you like uh, to, uh, uh, 
fantasy literature and specifically like the Silmarillion, then this will be something you might be interested in. And that's available from Darkly Bright Press. You can just go to darklybrightpress.com and uh, we'll have another book coming out sometime next year. So stay tuned for announcements about that. So anyway, that's basically okay, and we will. We'll definitely put all the links to everything that both yeah, of yeah, you yeah. guys are talking about in our show notes. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Okay. Reno. So that's, that's it. That's, uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Hey, so, uh, um, I actually, uh, came to, uh, orthodoxy and, uh, orthodox Christianity and Christianity. Like I, I feel like through Tolkien, I did a PhD, uh, on, uh, Tolkien's philosophy of mythopoeia and hyperreality at the university of St. Andrews, uh, and, um, published, uh, some chapters, uh, encyclopedia entries, uh, had a blog for uh, a long time called Time Out of Joint. Um, uh, and uh, I quickly, after I uh, finished my PhD, found classical education, as many people uh, on this podcast know, and have been able to uh, incorporate my work with Tolkien into classical education. I like to call myself the uh, 27th most foremost uh, uh, Tolkien scholar in the world because I recently discovered that some essays that I had written on Tolkien uh, actually have uh, created a lot of traction. And I suddenly found myself having kind of introduced uh, uh, some novelty in Tolkien scholarship. And so recently I have uh, been uh, managing the Tolkien's House of Being Facebook page uh, and irregularly updated Substack uh, and am working on a book with Kent State University Press by the same title, uh, Tolkien's House of Being, uh, kind of expanding some of the uh, work that I've done with Tolkien. Um, between that, I also spent some time uh, working in the film industry. I spent the better part of two years working for uh, Terrence Malick on uh, the Palme d'Or winning film, The Tree of Life, uh, which I like to, uh, there's lots of Tolkien stories when it comes to uh, Malick with fatherhood and uh, with Tolkien and cinema. But the big thing about that experience was really working with somebody who uh, uh, understands kind of the mythopoeic, but working with it in a different medium. And it completely transformed my understanding of Tolkien. One, working with someone famous, working with an artist, um, for an artist, I should say. Um, I merely kind of painted uh, a corner of a cloak uh, uh, or something in uh, in his great uh, painting. But um, so that's that's been my... Uh, experience with Tolkien. I too, I have a, a a short little chapbook on Tolkien and Anglo-Saxon Christianity coming out with Darkly Bright Press uh, next year, uh, hopefully uh, in the autumn, if there isn't a paper shortage and uh, the economy doesn't collapse. So, <laughs> thank you. This is so exciting to have both of you on the show. And hey, Reno, since you brought up the word mythopoeic, and I'm sure a lot of our question, our listeners are wondering, what is that? Some of them know what it is, but could you give us a brief explanation of that before we move into our our deeper topic of Chris, Christmas and fatherhood? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tolkien famously wrote a poem in 1931 called Mythopoeia, uh, which um, really is, uh, uh, it's a, 
a capsule that captures his anthropology of myth, storytelling, uh, and faith. Uh, it happened after a, a famous conversation on Addison's Walk with C.S. Lewis, which was a uh, instrumental moment in C.S. Lewis's own life in kind of coming back to uh, uh, a belief in God and Christianity. Uh, and essentially, mythopoeia uh, is, uh, it, it takes the idea that God is a storyteller and creates us as storytellers. It's who we are as human beings uh, to take the great cosmological story of the great uh, uh, storytelling architect and to continue to uh, um, reveal creation and reveal that story uh, through myth and our own stories. Um, and it's really important because it really is uh, before uh, someone like Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces uh, became popular, Tolkien uh, really understood that, uh, uh, that, that myth and the beauty that we see in uh, folk myth and then folk tales as they kind of move through history reveal something true about what it means to be a human being and God's design for us. Thank you. Trey, do you want to open up with a, a question? Yes, I'd be happy to. So, you know, in, in preparation for this conversation, we have been considering uh, some of the uh, letters that Tolkien wrote to his children uh, in the guise of Father Christmas, or, or maybe let's say uh, in, in the spirit of Father Christmas, or perhaps we could even say as Father Christmas. And so I do hope that over the course of this conversation, we will get to talk about Father Christmas, or as we know him, Santa Claus, uh, in, in great detail. And I think that will not only be uh, great fun, but also uh, really uh, a key to understanding Tolkien as a father, because whereas he's he's well known in the world at large for his his the books that he's written, you know he he applied his imagination and his ability to craft stories and to draw and to just uh, really capture the hearts and minds of of children in his own home with these letters that he wrote for for many many years. So I, I wonder, uh, Reno, if perhaps you could set the scene for us by just telling us a little bit about Tolkien's home, uh, tell us a bit about his children, and, and perhaps that'll be a good way for us to start a conversation about uh, his, his letter writing as Father Christmas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tolkien is very frank in many of his letters. Um, uh, he, he married his sweetheart, the love of his life. Uh, they were both uh, essentially uh, orphaned, um, and he really fought through uh, through age and faith differences, um, and and uh, guardian uh, uh, the advice of guardianship to be able to be with her. We should also mention World War One as well. Um, uh, so they had uh, four children, uh, three boys and one daughter, Michael, John, uh, or John, Michael, and Christopher and Priscilla. Um, and by all accounts, uh, uh, I mean Tolkien was always. He notoriously was late in publishing anything. I really resonate with uh, uh, Tolkien uh, as a 
scholar father husband uh he was notoriously late in getting things uh to the publisher i think one chaucer uh, 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 Oxford uh, Don said that Tolkien is ridiculous and has set back Chaucer scholarship by 20 years because uh, he hasn't gotten a particular uh, Chaucer manuscript in, right? Uh, um, but it's because, uh, because, you know, fighting through financial difficulty and grading extra papers and, and doing extra exam work and uh, uh, external examination work that uh, he was with his family um, as as much i think uh, as was possible we don't have a really great account of of the the as far as i know richard can uh, probably have uh, some other juicy details but the the real kind of inner workings uh, of family life like was was he a hugger was he a kisser uh was he a tucker inner uh uh at night, right? We've got a little bit of kind of historical distance. Um, but we do know through his letters, uh, specifically Father Christmas letters and his letters to his children, or at least his three boys, um, there's, I think, maybe two letters uh, collected that have been published to uh, Priscilla, um, that he was incredibly attentive and involved in uh, um, their formation. Well, I've so enjoyed looking through these these Christmas letters in particular, and one of the things that I delighted in was the the very fact that he um, went to great lengths to ensure that his children believed in Father Christmas. I mean, I, I think I even read somewhere that he would uh, even dust the letters with snow or ensure that he you know made a uh, you know a postmark from from the North Pole. And so this reminds me of something that that I did um, when my wife and I lived in Alaska several years ago. Uh, we actually happened to live uh, just down the street from North Pole, Alaska, that has a Santa Claus house where you can where you can uh, go and visit Santa there and uh, send and receive letters and whatnot. And so we got the idea that we we would like Tolkien write uh, Santa Claus letters to children, and we opened it up to friends and family, and we're able to to mail it from the Santa Claus house there in uh, near Fairbanks, Alaska. And of course, you know, this, this delighted the children and um, just really um, was a wonderful experience for me to, to allow Father Christmas or Santa Claus to act through me in writing these letters. And um, I, wanna, I wanna consider the details of this, these letters uh, further and I'll let you jump in here, Richard, but perhaps uh, this would be a um, a good place to start with uh, the question that a lot of families wrestle with today in our in our modern world, which is how does how does Santa Claus fit into the Christian home? And I just find it noteworthy that that Tolkien not only wanted his children to to believe in Father Christmas, but that he would go so far as to, to write these letters and to really establish a relationship, a a line of communication between his children and Father Christmas. So Richard, uh, maybe you could you could pick us up there. Yeah. So I'll begin with a personal anecdote, if that's all right. Um, when I was very young, uh, I was told growing up, and this is a curious thing. I mean, uh, for people who don't know, I grew up in a very sort of uh, strict fundamentalist Baptist home, and um, uh, not, which was great. Like just to be totally clear, uh, I had a great childhood. Um, so. 
I'm not complaining about that. But but I grew up in this very strict fundamentalist Baptist home, and one of the things that was uh, kind of part of that was, um, uh, you know, there there really was there really was not a sense that there was a real Santa Claus, um, or or rather, let, let me put it this way: um, what I was told growing up is that well, Santa Claus was a historical person named Nicholas of Myra. Uh, we wouldn't have said St. Nicholas, but uh, he's a historical person named Nicholas of Myra, and he was a uh, he was a, uh, a pastor in the early church, and he was persecuted for his uh, his belief in Christ by the Roman Empire, and all this stuff perfectly true. And then he died in the you know the late fourth century. So this is what I was told growing up about Santa, and so when I was probably probably four or five years old. My aunt took me, um, I was, uh, you know, we were in, uh, we were in East, uh, out in East Texas, which is where my family's from. Um, this is not my, uh, my real accent. My real accent actually sounds like this, but anyway, uh, so we're out in East Texas and, uh, which is where my family's from. And my aunt took me to the mall to go see Santa Claus. Right. And, um, she thought this will be a fun thing to do with my nephew. <laughs> Jokes on her. So <clears throat> we got there and I just, I sort of, I looked at the man sitting in the big chair and I said, well, he's not, he's not Santa Claus. And she said, no, 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 he's Santa. He's, you know, she's trying to like preserve the illusion, not, not knowing what a pedant she had on her hands. And I said, well, he's not Santa Claus uh, because Santa Claus is dead. Um, uh, this is what I had sort of taken away from all of that is there was a Santa Claus and he's dead now. So I said, that's not Santa Claus. He's dead. No, 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 that's Santa. And I just, apparently, I don't actually remember this super well, but apparently I got increasingly upset and I started to shout, Santa Claus is dead, dead, dead. Um, and uh, it upset all of the other children in the line for obvious reasons. And uh, my aunt was asked to leave. So... That was my sort of, yeah. So that was my, that's my early uh, engagement with a whole, you could say, Santa Claus mythos. So despite all of this, you know, I grew up a, a sort of great lover of Christmas. And um, and Christmas it was and remains a big deal in my family. And my dad would, you know, would get the Santa outfit and, you know, we would know it was time to open presents on Christmas morning because there would be sleigh bells jingling downstairs and, and, a, and, a, and a hearty ho, ho, ho that my, my dad would do. So, so we, so he, like, we went through all of the motions, you could say, but we were, we were told, like, it, we were, we were told it was kind of an act. Um, but I mean, this is the thing, man. Christmas is, is so magical. Um, that even if you try to disenchant it, you can't really help yourself. Like, it just sort of yeah. runs away with you. And so does, despite the fact that my parents, you know, tried to deliberately disenchant uh, the holiday, which they would have said was just trying to tell you like the truth, trying to tell us the truth about the world, um, uh, they couldn't help themselves, uh, uh, you know, in terms of participating and get, kind of getting caught up in the spirit and things like this. Mm -hmm. And if you want to, you know, I, I, um, I think it was Joshua Gibbs who said, you know, if you want an argument for why Christ really was born on December the 25th. Uh, which is something that I believe, and I will fight anybody, you know, who wants to convince me otherwise. But um, uh, if you want a real argument, something, you know, for that, like something really 
special does happen on Christmas Day. It's the only time that uh, the vast majority of Christians in North America uh, will put up a statue of Mary in their homes. Right. Oh, sure. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Like, like uh, my, you know, like my, all of my, you know, Baptist family members, they're putting up, you know, nativity sets in their homes. Uh, there mm-hmm. is a, you know, there's a, there's a sense of peace and goodwill that kind of pervades and, and overcomes the things that normally divide us around Christmas. Um, and uh, even like the whole Santa thing, like, again, you can say, I don't believe in it, but it's very hard to, I mean, you'd have to be a real, and I use this term literally, you'd have to be a real Scrooge to uh, uh, kind of not do the Santa thing with your kids. And so then, you know, so then it comes down to the question, well, what should I tell my children? And what's what's real, what's not? What if they they think that, you know, like, what if what if they become, you know, violently hurt and upset later on in life when they find out Santa isn't real and all, and all these questions. So you've got Tolkien here and he starts out doing uh and this is this is to me this is like uh, just a beautiful window into Tolkien's creative process. He starts out doing something that's sort of for fun and then uh and so he starts out it's just like here's like a little letter, a little postcard probably cuz well because his his son wrote to Santa. And so he's like, wouldn't it be fun if Santa wrote back? So he just does like this little postcard and uh, includes like a little illustration on the postcard and uh, has it mailed back. Um, And that starts a thing. Well, now the kiddos are expecting things. And of course, as we know, Tolkien's children, especially Christopher, were very attentive to, you know, things like continuity errors in Tolkien's writing and stuff like this. And so year after year, the letters have to get more elaborate. Um, and so 1925, if you're reading through the letter, the Father Christmas letters, 1925 is the year when the lore really starts to come into things and we meet the great polar bear. And then later on, we find out the great polar bear has a name and we find out there are snow elves. And the man in the moon, who is actually uh, the, if you wanted to make a Tolkien cinematic universe uh, and like connect all of his unconnected writings, uh, the Man in the Moon is the connective tissue because he appears in the Lord of the Rings in a song. He's also a main, one of the most important characters in Roverandum, which is set in our world. Uh, he also shows up in the Father Christmas letters and so on. Man in the Moon is basically all over the place. Um, the, Tolkien just really liked this story. He liked to, you know, use it and reuse it. Um, and what typically happens in all of the Man in the Moon stories is uh, he uh, comes down, stays out too late, gets drunk, passes out, doesn't get back to the moon in time and uh, bad things start happening on the moon. And then he wakes up and he has to, is to run up and fix everything anyway. Um, and, uh, and then of course the wonderful thing is that he keeps us going as he has more and more children born. And so um, for instance, the 1927 uh, in the 1927 letter, I have to say, I, I just, I feel, I feel a, a deep kinship with Tolkien here. Uh, because he starts it out saying, my dear people, there seem to get more and more of you every year. Um, <laughs> I have five children now, so I feel this in my soul. And then he says, I get poorer and poorer. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, this is the thing, you know, the, uh, Tolkien was never um, shy in his letters and his personal life. He was never shy about addressing the really hard realities of actually living life, uh, married life. I mean, the Tolkien household was not perfect. Uh, and, and we sort of do Tolkien and ourselves a disservice if we try to paint it as this, 
you know, yeah, he married his his uh, his sweetheart, but their marriage was difficult at times, right? They they remained religiously divided uh, for the rest of uh, their lives. Um, although she did she did officially convert to Roman Catholicism, she stopped attending church with Tolkien uh, after a few years of marriage um, and remained, you know, personally pious, but didn't go to church with him. Um, and uh, uh, there were some other difficulties. Um, um, uh, their oldest son was uh, was uh, sexually abused by a friend of the family, um, and this probably went on for some time. And you know, this is back when people didn't uh, you know people didn't talk about these things, right? And so it wasn't mm-hmm. you know it was never really dealt with. And so I, I'm just saying all this to say, it, uh, family life was difficult. Right. Tolkien raised a family during through two world wars. Right. Right. He raised a family through uh, uh, poverty, through hunger, through rationing, through air raids, through all of these different things. And then watched his sons go off to fight a war after he'd done that himself at that same age. You know, really difficult times. And if you look, especially at his letters back and forth to Christopher, when Christopher is fighting in the Second World War, he's in the RAF. Um, uh, I think he's in Africa. Um, you know, you know, they're just full of this really kind, lovely paternal concern. Um, and, uh, uh same with his letters to his son, Michael. <laughs> so anyway, all of this to say, where does, where do the father Christmas letters fit into all of this? Um, the father Christmas letters are just a, they're a beautiful kind of nexus of all of these things. And I would say one of the main things to take away from them is that Tolkien's primary audience was always his family, and it was always his children. Even The Lord of the Rings really is written to Christopher and for Christopher, right? Um, But his primary audience was always his children, and you can see just the gears turning in his mind. Um, uh, Simile, uh, a metaphor he probably would have hated. Uh, But you can see see things sort of clicking into place, um, because as he writes, the lore gets more and more developed. And by the end of the Father Christmas letters, like there are there's a there's a war with the goblins. There are elaborate elven alphabets like he just can't help himself. This is what he does. And um, yeah, so that doesn't totally address the question of maybe how to um, how, how we deal with St. Nicholas, Nicholas in, in, you know, in our own families or whatever. And I don't know right. if I'm going to talk about that some, but uh, but I, I, I think that for Tolkien, um to do this right to you know it's it's uh this is just a natural outgrowth of who he was as a father right this is what he did this is one of the main ways that he showed love to his children was to tell stories for them to build worlds for them to feed their imaginations and uh he did this through a very difficult life um and uh a very difficult time in you know, uh, world history and, um, and, and for Tolkien, this is how you keep the lights on. This is how, I mean, gosh, like you need Christmas, you need Mm -hmm. Father Christmas, you need St. Nicholas, you need, uh, these stories because if you don't have this stuff, then the, the, the pain of the world is going to just overwhelm you. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to center at least this part of our conversation about, about Father Christmas and 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 how uh, how he fits or does not fit into the Christian home today, and I think we have Tolkien as as a beautiful example to to look to. All of the various things you mentioned, I, I think, are 
very relevant to the conversation. Uh, I've been doing some reading about the you know the the life of C.S. Lewis, and of course, you know, there is a temptation to you know to think that you know any of these these men that have a reputation for uh, writing beautiful stories and for you know being great defenders of truth had perfect lives. And of course, that's just not the case. They had families, just like all of us have families. And uh, families are complicated and, and made up of, of human beings who, who sin against each other and against themselves. And, and so the same is true with these men. Um, specific to the, the conversation about, about Santa Claus, I, I do find it rather noteworthy that, as we've been discussing, Tolkien uh, really, really went very intentional in crafting this relationship between Father Christmas and his children. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, included Father Christmas in, in Narnia as a gift giver, and so there's that. And then uh, G.K. Chesterton, of course, was was from a different uh, time, but is oftentimes you know, included in this panoply of, of great thinkers and, and people that we would like to look to for, for advice. Uh, he, in Chesterton's own fashion uh, and style, went to the newspaper in defense of his belief in Santa Claus uh, and very rigorously defended um, uh, both the, uh, the tradition and the practices, uh, but also the existence of the man. And so um, perhaps uh, we could talk in more detail about that. And I'm just curious, uh, Reno, uh, do, do you believe in Santa Claus? Uh, yes, absolutely. A hundred percent, and I think this is uh, the the kind of missed point. Uh, w it can be a missed point in Tolkien's letters to Father Christmas, right? Um, if we don't believe uh, in Santa Claus, if we don't believe uh, in elves and in werewolves and in vampires, then uh, especially in the context of classical education, we're merely approaching it ironically. Right, we're really modern people, sophisticated moderns who like to dabble as though we go to the Renaissance Fair with uh, playing and and uh, enjoying the affects of a more primitive uh, age. Right, um, one of my favorite letters uh, uh, from Tolkien to Christopher uh, is it's uh, it's letter sixty eight. Um, and he's writing to Christopher, it's 1944, and he says, very much love to you and all my thoughts and prayers, how much I wish to know when you return to the lands of the living and we retell our tales, sitting by the wall in the sun, laughing at old grief, you shall tell me later then. Faramir to Frodo, he says, in parentheses, right? So, uh, and here, I mean, Christopher understands this context, but more than that, right? Understanding that th that this these tales are ha have teeth in reality and make sense of the tales that that we live. Um, with the letters to Father Christmas, I mean, the incredible detail uh, that that Tolkien gives uh, is more about connecting. Father Christmas in a modern age, in an age of flying Nazguls, in an age of the machine and cybernetics, um, that that 
Father Christmas is a tale that comes to us from a more ancient and more true uh, time. What's interesting is that he doesn't connect Father Christmas to St. Nicholas. When he gives the age of Father Nicholas, uh, 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 he says, um, I'm 1924, no, 1927 years old, which is astounding, right? Because what he's doing is connecting it to the birth of Christ itself. And there's this both and in the letters of Father yep. uh, Christmas, right? That, 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 that this story both is and is greater than what we really realize uh, about him. That's a kind of a father. Uh, that's a kind of a ghost of Christmas present reference too, right? Yeah. Uh, the ghost of Christmas present does the same thing in the Christmas Carol, right? Where you sort of realize like he's he's the embodiment of Christmas. Mm. Yeah. Now yeah. we should we should note we should note. I mean, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. Tolkien notoriously hated both sure. the Chronicles, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the reference to Father Christmas in Narnia, right? Uh, uh, Hooper uh, documents this, and Lancelin Green as well uh, documents this. Um, and Tolkien incredibly disliked bringing together the a northern myth, which he saw as uh, Father Christmas, with fawns. Like, these stories don't have, uh, they're not together. And what that would do, as as Richard pointed out, with, with the children kind of caring about consistency, is that it destroys the reality of the story. It destroys its rootedness. Um, I, uh, so when you say, do you believe in, in Santa Claus? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes, in the same way that I tell my boys that werewolves are real, right? When they, they're playing out front, I'm like, you, right. you can't be outside the gates of the castle because werewolves are out there. Oh, dad, werewolves aren't real. They absolutely are real. But nobody uh, is alive to say or to be able to testify to the moment that they see it transform because they've been devoured and destroyed, right? Yeah, we, we had a great conversation uh, with your wife uh, related to, to monsters uh, mm -hmm. when we did our, our Frankenstein uh, and uh, uh, Dracula episode. And so um, I, I think we could definitely take the conversation that direction. I, I want to articulate some thoughts I have um, about Santa Claus and I would love for uh, both of you to uh, help me think through this and, and help me uh, attach, uh, perhaps um, nest this and maybe reattach it to um, sort to tradition and to, you know, the things that um, need to be conserved and preserved. Because as you all well know, uh, this is this is the time of year when the Santa Claus Wars uh, start up again, and you have you have people who take up their their corners and and make very uh, rigorous and and um, detailed arguments as to why Santa Claus should or should not be a part of the life of the Christian family, uh, and and you know questions of his origins and questions of his um, his role in terms of um, you know, how he's connected to Christmas and, and just all of this, you know, is, is sort of stirred up again. And I, and I, I will say yes. to that, just by the way, like, I, this is something I think is very much worth arguing about. And even if somebody comes to a different conclusion, I appreciate that there are people who are, who feel like, hey, Santa Claus is important enough that we should have an argument about this. Um, you <laughs> That's know, right. I, 
people some people sometimes people will look back at uh like say like church history or something and say like oh look at all these people arguing over all this complicated language about god why couldn't they just be unified i'm like no you don't understand they were unified they were unified on the fact that they thought this was important enough to argue about and just the fact just because we don't doesn't mean it's not important so um you know if people feel like if people feel like hey santa is important enough to let's let's have an argument about it i'm there let's do it i i couldn't agree with you more and and i think it was chesterton who who reminded us that this is the season of forgiveness and so even if people don't believe in santa claus uh, we should forgive them sure yeah uh, and so, so just as much as Santa Claus is is worthy of uh, conversation and argument, um, well, like semantics, right? Like try to say it's just semantics to one of the inklings and, and see what they would say. So, so let's get into this a bit. Um, I think I think Richard, you can probably help us quite a bit um, in attaching yeah. uh, our um, understanding of Santa Claus to to pagan traditions and pagan sure, culture. Yeah. Um, because, you know, this is something that comes up a lot and there's, there's the accusation that, well, Christmas is really just a pagan, pagan holiday. And I, I would be in agreement with Chesterton again, that in so far as there's truth to the claim that Christmas is a pagan festival, that really only goes to show that the ancient pagans were much more sensible than, than us modern ones. So I wonder if you could maybe, uh, help lay out the argument there in terms of, um, uh, Sort of what are what are some of the things that the people will say, Christians will say yes, against the practice of Santa Claus, saying, "Well, that's 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 just some remnant of some pagan right pagan belief." So um, we can start uh, to start with the sort of larger claim, maybe that Christmas is a pagan holiday. Um, so this is based on a few different things. Ultimately, most of the stuff goes back to a book by uh, written by a a um, a Scottish Presbyterian named uh, Alexander Hislop. Um, it's called uh, I think it's called the Two Babylons or Mystery of Babylon, uh, something like that. Um, hold on, I'm gonna look it up because it's got a really metal sounding title. It is the two Babylons. The two Babylons, but the subtitle. subtitle. Yeah, the subtitle. Subtitle's is... really, uh, really <laughs> salty. Uh, here, hold on. Um, it's, it's, um, gosh darn it. Um, here we go. It's, uh, it's the two Babylons, originally subtitled uh, Romanism and its Origins, um, also subtitled or Papal Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife, with 61 woodcut illustrations from Nineveh, Babylon, Egypt, Pompeii, and etc. Um, so, so it has a couple of subtitles. So you can sort of like, yeah. So most of this Christian holidays are pagan stuff comes from this source. The book is a hoot to read. Um, it is also total bunk. Um, it's not historically accurate or or verifiable or you know respected or anything like that today. But um, it's the source of like a lot of these objections. So the argument typically goes something like um, Christmas is an adaptation of either a Germanic pagan holiday, you know, of, of Yule or the uh, the Roman pagan holiday of Saturnalia um, and that uh, Christmas was just chosen. Uh, they decided, well, we'll put the birth of Christ on this day so that we have a festival so that people will stop doing Saturnalia and they'll do Christmas instead. First of all, they say that like that's a bad argument uh like like a like i'm i'm so baffled by 
by the idea that that would be an argument against celebrating Christmas. But anyway, and then they'll, and, and then they'll point to a variety of Christmas uh, traditions, such as Christmas trees, and they'll say, oh, well, this is actually a, this is a pagan practice, you know, bringing a tree into your home or um, uh, what else? Um, uh, uh, Santa Claus is actually, you know, they'll say Santa Claus is actually, uh, or Father Christmas, this is uh, actually a reference to like Odin, Odin and the wild hunt, right? And these different things. And so they'll, they'll point at these different things and say, this stuff is, it's a holdover from paganism. So there are a few different responses to this. And I, I mentioned before we started the recording that I am a veteran, a, a scarred veteran of the Christmas Wars. Um, we, um, um, I, I was a, a evangelical pastor for about eight years uh, before we became Eastern Orthodox. And um, we had to deal with this every year because there was a discussion pretty much every year. Is it okay for us to... Uh, to decorate uh, the church for Christmas or, or or even hold a service on Christmas Day. And there were a lot of people who, uh, in our church, a minority, but a significant minority, who felt like we should not because uh, because of this, you know, these concerns. And, you know, they would send around the same video every year. And so we had to have this uh, discussion. So I started, like, just sort of every December, I would start the December by uh, by preaching my obligatory apologia for Santa Claus um, to sort of to sort of like, you know, get out in front of this stuff and sort of say, listen, I'm not telling you, you have to go home and celebrate Christmas in your home, but uh, this is why we're doing it here at the church and, and things like that. So, um, so there are a few different responses that can be made to this. The first is simply to say that uh, uh, Christ won, right? Christ has defeated the old gods. So uh, this is why we can read Homer and not be worried this is why we can, you know, so uh, you could say about the old gods, they made terrible masters, but they've made adequate servants. And um, so we don't, ha first of all, we, do we don't have to be afraid as Christians. Like anybody listening to this, I'm giving you permission. You don't have to be like afraid of paganism lurking behind rocks and trees and, you know, it's going to jump out at you and um, you know, whatever. Like, um, you know, again, a lot of these associations are... Um, are uh you know historically have been historically debunked right the connection of christmas trees to germanic paganism for instance uh is non-existent uh can't be proven um and if you actually look at why christmas trees started becoming a really big deal they, they they've been done since the middle ages uh this goes back to uh the fact that in the middle ages in the west one of the main uh one of the main themes of christmas day was actually the uh, story of Adam and Eve and the expulsion from paradise. And this sounds weird. Like, why would you talk about that on Christmas? Um, and um, I have an answer to that question, but it would take me another hour to to talk about. So, um, but I'm, if, if, I mean, I'm actually going to give a talk on it for our, our, uh, our uh, catechesis uh, and, and uh, adult Sunday school class uh, tomorrow at St. Seraphim. So, um, you know, that's not going to help people watching this video, but anyway, um, so there's, there's a, uh, so, so the, the idea of the evergreen tree is that it is of course the tree of life. It's the tree that doesn't turn colors during the winter, right? So it's, it's, it's always young, it's evergreen, literally. So you bring it into the, you bring it into the home and you decorate it. And this is, it's the tree of life. And it's part of this. Well, Luther was a big, uh, uh, uh proponent of this of the practice of the Christmas tree. And it was specifically because he wanted to get people to stop 
erecting nativity sets in their homes, right? Uh, to not not put up the statues, not put up the creches. And Lutheranism wasn't like super iconoclastic, but it was definitely more iconoclastic than I think sometimes people remember. And so he was trying to get people to stop doing the creche. And so he, he said, well, let's do Christmas trees instead. Um, and what happened? Everybody was like, you know what? Christmas trees are great. Also, creches. Creches are great. And people just did both. And this is the thing about Christmas. Of all the holidays of the Christian year, you know, it's not as actually as important to our faith as Easter, for instance. Um, but of all the holidays of the Christian faith, Christmas is the stickiest. Um, mm -hmm. And so because of this, yeah. like, you can't really, like, once you introduce a new Christmas tradition, you can't get rid of it again. And so right. so you can't, you can't get people to stop putting up nativity sets. Um, they'll just put up a Christmas tree, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it has this way of 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 developing, and you know, another word we could use, you know, we could say it's sticky. It's also absorbent, right? And yes. So, it, in as much as Christmas has absorbed uh, paying customs, right? Uh, it it absorbed them because they were humane, and because they belonged to Christ to begin with, right? Like they. Right. they so, go ahead. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is the thing: is that um, you could say symbolically. When else would Christ have been born? When else should the light come into the world? Right. Except at the uh, at the at the darkest time of the year. And this is the thing: people assume that oh, well, if it if it works symbolically, then that can't be real because real things don't click together that 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 nicely. Right. Right. But then, like, I mean. By that logic, you'd have to do away with like all the Old Testament prophecies of Christ and things like this. Like, like what else? I mean, Christ is the the maker of creation. He's the master of the cosmos. He's the one that made the times and the seasons. Like, when else would he come into the world? And the and the thing is, every culture knows you've got to have a big festival in the middle of winter, right? Why do they know that? Because they know there is something significant about. The fact that we need to preserve the light and keep the light sort of hidden and safe during this darkest time of the year. But why would that have, why would that then invalidate the fact that this is when Christ comes into the world? And, and in fact, if you look at when does the celebration of Christmas start to really take off in the Christian world, it's mm -hmm. during the Arian controversy. Um, uh, specifically during the fourth century. It's celebrated before then, but it's during the Arian controversy because uh, at this particular time, there was a specific version of Arianism that said that uh, Christ uh, really didn't become divine until he was baptized. This is actually Apollinarianism, but in, in any case, um, um, but it's an offshoot, right? It's this idea that um, that Christ didn't, like he was just born as a human and then at his baptism, you know, uh, basically the the mind of God entered him. So he was like had a human body, but then like a divine mind or soul. And there are actually, you know, um, there are people who still teach this today. There's a really prominent um, uh, reformed uh, apologist who, who actually teaches this. Um, but so in order to combat this, um, one of the things that the church did, um, St. Gregory, the theologian, St. Gregory of Nazianzus was one of the main people who put this forward. To really combat this, um, the church started uh, started really making the celebration of Christmas more significant because what Christmas is an affirmation of is that the child born of Mary and laid in the manger is already God worthy of worship. Yes. But before we get into that, uh, I feel like we should let Reno uh, 
jump into the conversation. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'll just kind of uh, add uh, and can continue the conversation, right? Um, and we'll tie back to Tolkien saying that the age of Father Christmas uh, is 1927 years old, or going back to the birth of Christ, right? That that the God of dung and straw is the God of men and elves, right? That the nativity is the epicenter of enchantment. Um, that's what Tolkien is uh, uh, essentially saying. Uh, there's a wonderful, so Tolkien obviously uh, has a translation of the Green Knight and Richard was talking about, you know, the Green Knight is, should be read in all homes uh, uh, during nativity. But he has a beautiful essay, 1953, after Tolkien became a professor of, uh, principally a professor of Middle English, right? So he started off as uh, Old Norse, then uh, 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 Anglo-Saxon, and then of Middle English. So this is 53. Uh, I think it's the Merton Professor, Richard. I'm a, uh, but um, he has a beautiful essay, 1953, actually recommended to me uh, by uh, Terence Malick. He was like, have you ever read uh, uh, Tolkien's essay uh, on the Green Knight? It's really beautiful. And in this essay, uh, Tolkien talks about something more ancient behind this story of the Green Knight, that even the author of the Green Knight maybe wasn't completely aware of, right? But th these, this story of fairy uh, um, and revolving around Christmas lets us know that, that, the, that the material world um, is, there's more to the material world than just the dung and straw, that there's something greater behind it surrounding it and infusing it. Um, and this is the connection with the letters of Father Christmas, is that in an age when uh, motor cars are prevalent and there's phonographs and radio um, and uh, bombers flying over and tanks and mustard gas uh, uh, in, in the battlefield, that, that uh, um, the traditions that, that we have inherited somehow need to maintain their connection to a more ancient uh, and true sensibility, a way of interacting with world and things um, that, that uh, reveal to us what it means to be a human being. And so yeah. this goes back to the mythopoeia and the mythopoeic, right? Um, that we have, it, it is paramount, especially in an age of uh, robots, that that uh, Christmas, we see Christmas as not just um, a holiday or something merely magical, but it's a, it's a mythopoeic uh, um, season. Mm. So. I, I'm so glad, Rena, that you brought up the material world. Because one of the things that people will accuse Christmas of being and, and will lump Santa Claus in, in, a, in all of this because he brings us material things um, is, that, is that Christmas is just materialistic. And, and I'm just not really persuaded by that argument because I don't think, I don't think we're nearly as materialistic as, as we've been accused of being. In fact, I don't think we care about matter nearly enough. We're I think if anything— Gnostic. No, I think I think that's so true. Yes, yeah. uh, Gnosticism yeah. is is run rampant, and and this this divide between the spiritual and the material uh, is this um, 
is that we've we've really created a uh, well we we've just as you've as you pointed out fallen back into Gnosticism, and this is what is oftentimes preached in pulpits uh, pertaining to Christmas is sort of railing against materialism. When I don't know a single child who goes to bed sort of dreaming about how you know the fact that Santa Claus is bringing him gifts is going to be so good for for the economy, right? I mean, like that's just not something that children are, are terribly concerned with. Um, but what they are compelled by, and what I think should be nurtured in the home, is the fact that some spirit of um, generosity cares for them and gives them things with no sort of desire for anything in return other than other than sort of passing on love and 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 kindness and and gift giving right the spirit of gift giving um and you know my children still to this day and they're very young so that they haven't sort of had this sort of taught out of them by you know um well-meaning teachers and and social workers and whatnot but uh they are very grateful to santa claus um they 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 still look at the things they have and and are thankful and grateful in that way and so that i think is is very much a part of the spirit of christmas and i think santa claus embodies the spirit of christmas in a, in a very unique way and whereas tolkien doesn't in that instance uh tie santa claus back to the saint saint nicholas i think he he's actually doing something much more subtle there by tying him back to christ who of course all saints have died to themselves, and it is not the saint who acts, but Christ through them, mm. right? And so uh, this this is where I'm going to put forward my argument, and you, I'd love to hear uh, what both of you think about this. And I have to credit Jonathan Pagel for helping me put some words to this, something I've been thinking about for several years now. And I think it's a responsibility for uh, all fathers to think about uh, when it pertains to Santa Claus and 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 how they invite him into, into their home. Um, so let's see, let's see, how, how do I want to say this? Um, I, with Chesterton and uh, with Tolkien and, and I suppose C.S. Lewis and hopefully others of, of great company, believe in Santa Claus. And I believe in Santa Claus because I believe in saints and I believe that saints are dead but alive right right so you were right as a little boy yeah santa died but guess what when you die you you resurrect and you live again and one day uh the the bodily form of uh santa claus will be resurrected and and we'll all live in, in a new heaven a new earth and but even and, even now his relics continue to stream myrrh and work oh, that's miracles right. and that's true and, you know i was in miami uh two weeks ago and uh, speaking at a parish there, Christ the Savior Cathedral in Miami, and Father Joseph took me into the uh, into the 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 nave of the church there, and mm -hmm. uh, right up front there was a piece of there's a piece of Saint Nicholas, there's a piece of his bones right there in the middle of the church, and um, yeah, so I mean, yes, looking forward to the resurrection, but also like we have these these tokens, like you could say like uh, down payments on mm. the resurrection of the dead, which is kind of what relics are. Yeah, I think I think that's quite right. Um, Rena, you, you had a comment on that? Yeah, I was just going to I was going to connect this um, just kind of back to Mythopoeia and Tolkien um, as a father and like what our responsibility is, right? That, that there is the 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 kind of 
the, the priestly responsibility yeah. with with our children. But and uh, there is the rich tradition of folk tales and stories and myths that mm-hmm. allow us to kind of uh, um, see the world itself as as. Uh, 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 to see the implications of the nativity, to see the implications right. of uh, uh, of uh, uh, the incarnation, to see the implications that that we worship of God, uh, uh, of spirit, and of dung and straw. Yeah. Uh, that uh, um, that that when we go into forests, um, the it is a forest plus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These tales um, are not merely. Uh, I think Arthur Mackin makes a distinction between uh, what is real and actual um, in, in my teaching and in, in our home with the boys when, I, when I'm told magic isn't real um, or somebody's, uh, you know, that right now they're being, my sons are being challenged with uh, whether or not, uh, you know, other kids are trying to tell them that Santa Claus isn't real. Right. It's like r- real as being the operative uh, um determiner of 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 reality it is uh, the the misnomer it's like mm-hmm, i'm not mm-hmm. sure about that but what i am concerned about is what is true right um and and everything about magic and everything about father christmas everything about elves in the forest and werewolves um on dark paths yeah um, is absolutely completely true and a thousand percent not only consistent with uh nativity and the incarnation but is there is a necessary relationship between them and i think that's what tolkien's telling us with his children and and with these stories is that it is paramount in the age that we live in to to preserve this so that our children can engage the world as an enchanted space so, so here's here's what I've thought of thus far. It seems to me that um, Santa Claus absolutely exists. I think that's an undeniable fact. Um, now, the question of how he exists would take further conversation. Right. But the question of does he exist, I think, is a silly question because obviously, not only does he exist in stories and in song, but there's icons of him everywhere. And then you can actually go like. Richard did, and sit on his lap in the mall, right? Now, the question is, is when you're sitting on Santa's lap there, who are you talking to? And this is something that Jonathan Peugeot gets into and and probably will say it much better than I'm about to, but, you know, the child is not talking to Joe when he's telling this man what he wants for Christmas. He's talking to Santa Claus. And if Joe sitting there acting in persona Santa if if you'll excuse uh, that phrase, I think that's an appropriate phrase. It's it's a, it, it is a hundred percent acceptable. The Perfect. whole the whole basis of Christianity is that one person can do something on behalf of somebody else. Yeah, and it counts. Absolutely, if that's not true. You can't be <laughs> saved. That's that's. I mean, you you yeah. You really took us oh. home right there. We need to circle so, around to that. Quiet. I've been quiet, but Richard, I want you to expand on that because I think that was super profound. I mean, the and whole, I agree with you. Yeah, can, so, can we hold finish, off on it? Because that's what you're saying, Trey, and I'll, yeah. I'll come back around to that. Because I think that, I think that's the I think that's the home run that, right, that we're yeah. all aiming at here. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, the the child is talking to Santa Claus, and if 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 Joe 
acts as Joe and starts telling the kid about his recent divorce and how he's having a hard time making his car payments, the kid like knows he's not talking to Santa Claus. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so um, there is uh, the embodiment of Santa Claus uh, in, in that place. And then in the home, um, I'm going to make the case that in order for Father Christmas to be invited into your home, it's going to take Christian fathers mm-hmm. and uh, Christian mothers. And listen, Father Christmas will act through non-Christians as well, right? And that's sort of the crazy thing about Christmas. Not only is it super absorbent, but it it's worked its way into almost every nook and cranny. Um, and and it takes some real scrooges, as you say, to to sort of try to drive it out. But it almost always finds its way back in again. Yeah. And so in the home, you've got the folks who, you know, are going to make this 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 argument that, you know, well, you're lying to your children and, you know, you they, they need to be really clear on, you know, the material cause of exactly how those, you know, presents are getting under the tree or in the stocking. And of course, I would want to agree with them saying that, of course, and as far as the material cause is concerned, you, you know, yes, I am, I'm going to have to talk quietly here. I am, you know, my wife and I, right, take the gifts and we buy them, right? Anymore, we order them on Amazon, forgive us. And we put them out there, right? Now, here's the thing. Would I do that by myself? No. What do I want to do after my children are in bed? Well, if I'm telling the truth, I want a strong drink and probably watch some YouTube videos and read a book. That's what I want to do. That's what Trey wants to do. What does Santa Claus want to do? He wants to put gifts out. That's what he wants to do. And so I willingly allow Santa Claus or St. Nicholas to act through me, right, as the material calls to make these things happen. And if I choose not to do that, then I've chosen not to invite him into my home. And, you know, we, we all wake up to a whole lot of coal in the, in the fireplace. <laughs> and that's it. And so anyhow, um, I'm just not all that compelled by the folks who um, want to um, sort of cut us off from that tradition of believing that number one, saints are alive and intercede on our behalf, but also like are still working in the world. And they, what is, what is the agency by which, the, you know, they sort of have hands and feet in the world? Well, that's us. And frankly, I mean, that's exactly what we say about Christ working in the world, right? Like that he works through his church and that's how he is um, sort of, uh, sort of physically made present in the, in the lives of people. And so I think in the same way, it's a really beautiful thing to uh, to embody uh, Saint, uh, you know, the saint, and, and to keep that going. And the fact that it's um, something that you know was practiced by a man like Tolkien. I mean, I don't think that's that's nothing either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in in our homes, um, we are uh, uh, we radical Nicholists, you could say, and so we. Um, uh, uh, Santa Claus is Saint Nicholas, um, and it's important to note, by the way, in in a lot of Eastern Christian countries, for instance, Greece, it's actually Saint Basil who brings the presents, not Saint Nicholas. So that's like a whole extra. That's like a whole extra layer to the 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 thing where you could say like Saint Nicholas is Father Christmas, but also sometimes Father Christmas is Saint Basil. You know, so so there's like a whole. Yeah. That's like a whole extra layer to the conversation, but. Um, 
you know, but in our home, I mean, we we're Americans. We're also in the the Russian tradition and in uh, in, in our church. And so, in that the the sort of like Slavic uh, tradition, it is Saint Nicholas who brings the presents. So anyway, all that to say, in our home, it's Saint Nicholas that brings the presents, and uh, my children know that Saint Nicholas is a real person. And um, we uh, uh, we celebrate his feast day. We venerate his relics. We kiss his icon every Sunday when we go to church. Uh, we have an icon of him here in the home as well. So um, so what the approach that I have taken is simply to say, well, uh, uh, because I'm a Christian and not a crazy person, I believe in Saint Nicholas. Um, you'd have to be like, I mean, Saint Nicholas is the you know outside the Mother of God is the most revered saint on the planet. Um, and so even in like these Eastern Christian countries where uh, St. Basil is the one that brings the presents um, uh, because kids open their presents on uh, January the 1st, which is the Feast of St. Basil the Great, um, you, uh, you still like you couldn't imagine a bigger saint than St. Nicholas. Like, I mean, you know, as an intercessor, as especially protector of children, et cetera, like he's, he's, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest saints, probably the biggest saint uh, in the Christian world. And so, like, you'd have to be a crazy person, you know, to ignore all of that and not not believe in St. Nicholas. And and so um, what I have done is just to teach my children about St. Nicholas. And, uh, and of course, on the, the on Tuesday this week, uh, December the 6th, which is the Feast of St. Nicholas, that my children will leave their shoes out the night before. And when they wake up in the morning, St. Nicholas will have brought them some goodies in their shoes. Um, but then, of course, they know that St. Nicholas also brings presents on Christmas Day. So what I've done is just to teach my children about St. Nicholas and then to allow them to to be exposed to and absorb uh, the pop culture, uh, the pop culture lore uh, that exists in our country today and in stuff like Narnia and, and other and the Father Christmas letters and elsewhere to absorb just the kind of general lore about Santa Claus. And I have just allowed them as they've grown older to work those things out kind of on their own. So they have like their own sort of mythical map for St. Nicholas. And then here's all the Santa Claus traditions and where does the stuff fit in? And because they're kids, they're not super concerned with, they're not trying to like build a rigid timeline for exactly when and how did all of this happen? And don't these stories contradict each other? Uh, because they they're uh, they're poets, they're natural poets, right? They can hold they can hold tensions in their mind, and uh, usually it's not a problem. And sometimes they'll ask a clarifying question, and I'll say, "Well, here's the life of Saint Nicholas that we read to you every year. Here are some legends that uh, that you know uh, about him that sort of arose over time, et cetera, et cetera." And and it's just there's no problem. They don't. It's not an issue. So um, uh, so this is how we do it in my house. Um, other people do it other ways. Um, but I've always been inherently suspicious of debunkers, right? People who, people who uh, want to go around and, and like, oh, well, I don't believe in Santa Claus. So I need to make darn sure that you don't either. Yeah. The, the, the Christopher Hitchens of Christmas. Right. Yeah. Or the Neil deGrasse Tyson of Christmas or like whatever. Right. So, so that's one thing. And then the other thing to kind of say, uh, to kind of follow up on what I said a moment ago, um, uh, your whole your whole argument of acting on behalf of Saint Nicholas is is exactly correct. Um, if you don't believe that you can do something on behalf of somebody else, and it count, then you don't understand the gospel. Right. This is the whole basic premise of Christianity. 
is that Christ is able to uh, by by assuming our nature, right? By uh, he allows us to participate in his life, and this is how we're saved. So the whole basic, and then this, but this, you know, the 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 cosmos is laid out in a series of fractal patterns, and so this is true all the way down the line. Um, when um, you know, I act in various capacities as the as the the head of my home as a, a representative of my parish and of my bishop in certain circumstances. Um, but, uh, you know, if, but I also, I also have a day job where I work for um, the federal government. And sometimes I act on behalf, you know, sometimes in my interactions with, with the, the, the industry and the outside world, I'm acting on behalf of the federal government, right? And so when I'm speaking, when I'm saying something, it's not just Richard saying it, that's the United States government saying that, right? Um, so you have the so we all have this capacity to act vicariously. I mean, literally, that's what the word vicar means. Uh, we have the this capacity to act this this ability to act vicariously on the behalf of various people. And of course, you know, um, uh, the bishop uh, acts vicariously on the behalf of Christ. Um, the the priests act vicariously on behalf of the bishop, and so on, right? So this is the I mean, the whole premise of our faith is that you can act in this way. And so, sure. Did St. Nicholas get you these presents? Absolutely. Was dad the material cause of getting these presents? Also, yes, right? It's not, you know, it's not really a problem. And um, uh, these things are, I'm going to go as far as to say that this is, this kind of activity, this is salvific, right? It's not just a matter of, it's not just a matter of do this fun thing for your kids. But when you enter into the spirit of St. Nicholas, which, by the way, should involve feeding the poor, you know, giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, um, um, you know, living a life of prayer, you know, really, if we could really embody his life and we look at his life and we see his deep generosity, his stalwart defense of the faith and specifically of the incarnation. So it's appropriate that he's kind of the Christmas saint, right? Um, his stalwart defense of the faith, his his deep love for his flock, his care for his flock. When you as a parent embody those things for your children, you're making St. Nicholas present to them and you're making Christ present to them because this is what saints do. They make Christ present. And, um, and when you do that, it will also be salvific for you. It's not just a nice thing you do for your kids, but then you also, because you are participating in something holy, you're participating in this higher pattern, it also makes you more like Christ. And, That's right. Yeah. So That's right. I, I, I know we're running out of time, and I haven't real, I've been really enjoying this conversation, so I haven't really said much. But um, I want to hear Reno's thoughts. Um, but I also, you said something, Richard, about the cosmos. A minute ago, mm -hmm. yeah. and it made me think about what was going on in the cosmos when Christ was born, and how much that matters. It mattered so much that there were several wise men who traveled a long way because of what they saw happening. It was very significant, and I think, I think that um, you know, my background—I was Protestant my whole life. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was two years old. And again, when I was seven and I followed him my whole life. And, but this idea of the cosmos and how much it ties to reality and uh, to mystery, 
to our faith and to all of our being, I think is a really important idea that we, that I was never taught. And, and why I think that it is a very part of why I do the work I do in classical education too, is because I think that, and Reno, you and I've talked about this because we work together, how important it is to bring in the, all of the seven liberal arts, including astronomy tied, tied correctly to music and geometry and how, once we get that restored properly in the education of children, it's actually going to help us see the truth of God, right? So I, I just needed to bring that in. But if you guys have anything to say about the cosmos and what was going on in the sky, I, I don't know if we have time, but maybe a little ditty of some sort. <laughs> um, so man, uh, uh, there's the really beautiful, all I can think about right at this moment is this really beautiful moment in the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is this very important early Christian document. Um, it's not not a canonized scripture, but the church has based a lot of our um, our understanding of what was happening, for instance, at the nativity on, on this document. So it was really important in the early church and it's still part of our tradition today. Um, but there's this beautiful moment where Joseph is walking along uh, like he's going to get the midwife, right? You know, right at the birth of Christ. And the whole world stops. And it's this really beautiful kind of very, um, you know, if we were trying to like put uh, ascribe a genre to this particular passage today, we'd probably put it in like magical realism or something like that because it feels very realistic, like it's very detailed. Um, I wish I had it just like pulled up here so I could read it, but but it's this beautiful moment as Christ is born that time stops. Um, and we are told in the hymns of the church, for instance, and in the writings of early church fathers like St. Irenaeus of Lyon, that the mystery of the incarnation was a hidden secret even from the angels, right? Uh, which includes, you know, the heavenly hosts, the, this idea of the heavenly hosts to the ancient mind and, and certainly in the scriptures. I mean, just literally in the scriptures, uh, stars and planets are angels. You could say they're controlled by angels or they're piloted by angels if that helps you. But um, I mean, literally in the scriptures, if you read the Old Testament, for instance, stars and planets are, are angels. And so uh, when you have this idea of like the heavenly host acknowledging the birth of Christ, Right, um, the way the way that that's appears in these beautiful stories and documents from the uh, the earliest days of our faith is as it's the stars singing when Christ is born. Right. You um, know why my banner on my Facebook page? Yeah. Look at the banner I had painted. There's a reason. Yes, I know. I've seen my it. classical education banner is stars coming down as angels. But this is um, this is but this goes back to the book of Job in the yeah. book of Job, when um, um, uh, uh, this will tie all, this ties us nicely all the way back around to the tree of life, right? Which opens with this quote from the book of Job: "This ubisunt, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God sang for joy, right? Well, this this the morning stars sang together, the sons of God." 
Morty, stars and then sons of God is this Old Testament term for angels. So those are the same thing, right? It's it's the stars, it's the angels singing at the creation of the cosmos, right? And God is saying to Job, where were you? But what we have happening in uh, the Gospels is that this happens again, like the birth of Christ into the world is a recreating of the world, right? That the stars stop and the sons of God sing again uh, because now Christ the light has come into the world and he's come to banish the darkness and he's come to destroy death and he's come to do all these things. And so, um, and so to me, I mean, this is, this is the, I mean, Tolkien said he does not see stars who does not see them first. Um, how's that go? We should read this as, as a end to our discussion. Um, and then Reno can fill in the deficiencies of anything I've said. Um, but, uh, what does he say? He says, he he sees no stars who does not see them first of living silver made that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath the ancient song whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven, an elf pattern, and no earth unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. And if you look at a traditional Eastern icon of the nativity, you will see all of this. You will see the stars uh, as angels bursting to song, and you'll see the earth, uh, the cave, the the cave of the of the of the manger, right? The cave of the nativity, enclosed around Mary and the Christ child like a womb, right? As Christ's light is being born into the darkness and the stillness of that moment. Um, our whole understanding of the cosmos as Christians goes back, I believe, to Christ to Christmas. Right. This and if you can see the world in this way, then you can start studying astronomy safely. If you don't, you'll end up like Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is one of the worst things that I could imagine. Reno. Yeah, you, I, you know, we can. Uh, uh, I'm going to kind of finish by uh, returning to to Tolkien's uh, uh, work and and his thoughts. And I mean, this conversation about the star itself, I mean, obviously, is apropos for Tolkien, right? I mean, famously, the the legendarium begins with his own enchantment from the Anglo-Saxon poem "Christ One." Which is a series of O antiphons. It was it, they were there were antiphons used during Advent uh, in the Anglo-Saxon Church, right? And Hail Arendil, brightest of angels, is one of the antiphons. Um, which uh, Arendil uh, uh, is both a star and a person and a meaningful signifier of uh, he who precedes. Uh, uh, um, the Messiah, um, uh, and we can kind of see that that becomes embodied in Tolkien's own legendarium with uh, Erendil, the voyage of Erendil, who is the star that reminds us of the hope to come. That that darkness doesn't have uh, the final say. You know, Tolkien, uh, um, when the company arrives in Rivendell on October the 24th, uh, they rest there. They have respite, um, uh, leisure time in, uh, uh, in, uh, in kind of a, in a classical education sense, right, uh, and a classical Western sense. They have leisure to restore their souls and to contemplate the richness of what it means to be a human being, and the company leaves— 
on December the 25th, and they set off for Mordor. Um, the ring is destroyed on March the 25th, which is the Feast of the Annunciation and the traditional date of the death of Christ. Okay. And so I think this kind of it the letters of to Father Christmas for Tolkien were paramount in understanding this complete story, right? That um, there is a relationship between what it means to be inheritors of of the faith, to to worship a God who becomes human, who dies, um, and who is resurrected, and Santa Claus and elves uh, in the forest. So I think this is why these stories are important and that they're true. Yeah. And as classical educators, um, if we don't see them as true and necessary, we're just kind of playing dress up, I think. Mm -hmm. And we might be only playing dress up as uh, human beings as well. This was amazing. I am so excited and glad that I had you guys on today. Uh, I, we could talk for another hour, I'm sure. <laughs> and at the end of this episode, I went back and as we're t you guys were talking, I looked back at the banner I commissioned for, for the Facebook theme and there's the man in the moon and <laughs> the stars coming down with musical instruments. And there's even yeah. pine trees in the background. <laughs> and I didn't even ask her to put pine trees in there. So it's really... Yeah. It's, I mean, this it's is encouraging that this uh, is really the way the world yeah. is. It yeah. is. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, well, I want to encourage our listeners to uh, find your podcasts, uh, Reno's Facebook page, Tolkien's House of Being. And um, we will put links in our show notes for all of the different titles and ways to connect with Reno and Richard. Um, have a Merry Christmas. Thank and you. may Father, Spirit of Christmas, visit you visit your house thanks very much for having us thank you so much thank you i'm going to read J.R.R.R. tolkien's favorite lines from the old english o antiphons known as the advent lyrics or christ one written by the poet kinney wolf sometime before the 10th century this is the o orians addressed to the Daystar. Eala rendil engla beortas offer millenniers monum sended on sofesta suna leoma tort offer tunglas frutida gewane of sirfom fe simle in lites. Hela rendil brightest of the angels sent to mankind over Middle-earth, righteous sun's radiance, splendid above all stars. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, 
The final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.